Hello and welcome again to the Top People podcast. I got chatting to Dame Ellen MacArthur in January this year at the wonderful People's Postcode Lottery Gala Dinner up in Edinburgh. We were both there celebrating the funding for our charities and lots of others, including the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust and the Foundation, and as lucky folk here at Missing People. Within just a minute of us chatting, Ellen was inspiring me with the most incredible story of survival, up the mast of her sailing boat Moby. She was deep in the Southern Ocean, buffeted by huge waves, hanging on with sheer grit, and inspired with the images of the children she'd met who were dealing with cancer, helping her through. A moment she'll never forget, and more of that in a mo. A few weeks later, I plucked up the nerve to ask if Ellen would agree to be interviewed by me for the Inspiring People podcast series. The lovely Frank Fletcher, CEO of the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust, helped, and no one was more surprised and pleased than me when she said yes. Cheers, Frank. So I travelled to the Isle of Wight on a beautiful sunny day in May on the Red Jet Ferry from Southampton to meet at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation home near the bunting-clad bustling high street in Cowes. What a treat, though I was quite nervous too. I guess I was in awe, meeting someone who at the age of 17 was already teaching navigation at a sailing school in Hull before sailing solo around Great Britain at the age of 18, saving up her school dinner money to buy her first boat, and then, just 10 years later, sailing to the bottom of the earth and back again, solo, non-stop, breaking the world record in 71 days, over 27,000 nautical miles in her beloved Moby. Wow. It is fascinating to hear about her focus and drive and resilience, about decision-making with her life on the line whilst on her own for months on end and extreme sleep deprivation. Her thinking on building great teams to achieve great things, about her personal sacrifices and those of her family, the highs and lows and through everything a passion that shines through in every word and expression and smile of Ellen as you'll hear. Ellen's passion for sailing matches her passion now for how we could fundamentally change our economy to protect the world's finite resources. It blows my mind and has changed my thinking and understanding. And in doing so, as you'll hear, has made me feel slightly better about my own takeaway coffee drinking habits and also given me a passion and a new way and new thinking for the world we live in. So sit back and enjoy. This is a real treat. Ellen MacArthur, I'm so thrilled that you agreed to be interviewed for this Top People podcast series. We were just chatting about the Round Britain 2017 with the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust and Moon Spray. Tell me a bit about that trip and how it's going so far. They just set off on Saturday, didn't they? Yeah, well, the young people have only just left. It's leg one, really, to go <laughs> to Glasgow, effectively, although they stop at many places on the way. And it's hugely exciting for us. It's, it's, it's a big deal to sail around Britain. It's, you know, it's over 2,500 miles. And uh, the young people are so excited to be part of it. And for the Trust, it's really important. Not only that it gives an extra opportunity for young people to take part in something almost bigger than the sum of its parts, because it has a beginning and an end and it's, it's a real voyage. But also, you know, we can currently only take one out of every nine young people in recovery from cancer and leukaemia sailing. 
and we'd like to, to up that number. So to communicate what we do and to talk about the trust as we sell right around the country for us is really very important, not just from a public awareness perspective and a fundraising awareness perspective, but also from a young person's perspective. So young people in hospitals being treated now can look out and, and meet the young people that we take into hospitals as part of that journey and say, you know, I, I may be really poorly right now, but look what I could do. And that in itself is something which is quite precious. And I was so excited to see the young guy who was presenting on Facebook Live, doing the interviews, mm. interviewed you and Frank and the other mm. young people. In terms of what you've got from all of your amazing sailing experience, how do you think that's, you've given that as a gift to some of the young people? What well, effect does that have for it's, them? It's an interesting question. I mean, I, I've never, although the, the vehicle for the Cancer Trust is sailing, it's not really about sailing at all. It's about what being on a boat for a period of time with a group of young people who've been through something very similar can do for that person. And, you know, the boat seems to create that very special unit um, and we have multiple boats on each trip when we're doing our normal trips throughout the summer. Um, so the units mix and the units bond as much as the unit in itself bonds. But there's just something special. There's, there's, there's some magic that happens and you can't put your finger on it, you can't describe it. It's not really about sailing. Some young people take up sailing and they want to sail more and, and, and do and are doing around Britain and sailing more. But actually, you know, at the core of what the Cancer Trust does is rebuilding confidence. It just so happens that happens on a boat. So for young people having to face their own mortality at such a young age, the loss of confidence, taking them on a trip like that. And I guess it's all about possibility. And also a trip that you did years ago when you were quite young didn't you going yeah, the, around Great Britain this is actually so. the second time that the Cancer Trust gone around Britain we did it in 2009 and that was again a great adventure it was it was you know done done differently with different young people um, you know different skippers but the idea did kind of come partly from a conversation as my first solo journey that I undertook was on a little tiny boat called Iduna and I sailed around yeah. Britain when I was 18 years old and uh, and that for me was a great adventure you know I learned about how to be on your own, how to sail on your own, and, and going to places I'd never seen before. But you also learn how beautiful this country is. I mean, it's absolutely stunning to, to be in the you know, northwest coast of Scotland or you know, on the sands of the east coast or the, you know, the mud flats of the east coast or going into harbours you've never seen before. It's, it was really, really exciting for me as a young person and you know, for the young people going around Britain this year uh, to be able to share some of that excitement. It's pretty special. And how, at that age, did you have any idea how to navigate your way around the whole coast of Great Britain? It's quite, it's quite a feat. Yeah, it's a, it's a long way. And the boat <laughs> I took was very small. I mean, Moonspray is a big boat with lots of space. My boat was tiny. Um, but I'd spent a lot of time at a sailing school. Well, I say a lot of time. I spent a year before I left at a sailing school, not only um, learning the ropes as quickly as I could, and, you know, I had sailed for many years before, yeah. but also I became an instructor. So I was teaching courses from 94 to 95, which is when I set off around Britain. And, uh, and actually, if you are having to teach navigation at a, you know, yacht master level, and I was only 18 at the time, 17 when I started, right. you really have to learn it inside out. So I think the fact that I kind of committed to not only learning it, but then teaching it and, and helping others to understand it, that made a big difference. That really helped me to, to really get to grips with navigation. Um, thinking about a conversation we had up at the People's Postcode Lottery Gala Dinner, mm -hmm. and of course they're a funder for the Ellen MacArthur Cancer Trust and for the foundation. They are. And so key for allowing you to do what, what you want to and do. And so many charities. A absolutely. For what it's they an do. Incredible, incredible funder, and it's lovely yeah. to get the opportunity uh, yeah. to give them a huge plug for everything that they do. Mm -hmm. You were describing to me, we had a very brief conversation about you being at the top 
of the mast in the Southern Ocean mm -hmm. and really feeling that you were in a very perilous, dangerous situation. Um, and it was the thought of the face of one of the young people that was dealing with mm. cancer that helped you through that. Can you remember that moment? Can you tell me? Oh, I'll never forget it. That? Yeah, that's the kind of thing you never forget. I, it was uh, the Southern Ocean. We were near the Kegelan Islands, which is pretty much about as far away from normal <laughs> civilization as you can get. The, the French islands deep in the Southern Ocean. Um, and I'd had a problem with the boat. The boat had jived. The boat had basically laid on its side in these massive waves in the Southern Ocean. And it was a real struggle to get the boat the right way up because the, the sails were pinning the boat down and I had to, you know, release ropes, pull other ropes. I had to get the keel sorted out. And when the, when the boat did come the right way up and continued sailing, I realised that um, high up the, the sail, some of the battens had broken, which meant that I couldn't get the sail down and I had to get the sail down because it was getting windier and windier. And having too much sail up when there's too much wind not only risks you and the boat, but it also risks the sail. If the sail tears, you don't have a spare, so you really have to look after it. So the only way I could get the sail down was to climb the mast, and it was the least um, obvious time to climb the mast in an entire around the world. It was blowing 45 knots. There were massive waves. They were breaking as the shallows were were becoming more and more evident in this area to the north of the Kegelan Islands. So it was really not when you want to go up, but I had to. And so I, I, you know, I got my gear together and sorted my head out, and I and I went up the rig and I got to the point which was just over halfway where the the baton was caught and I managed to get it out which I, I wasn't even sure I'd be able to. The whole thing took me, I think it was two hours it was a long time from when I left the deck to getting back down, it was a, it was a big deal and, uh, and on the way down, well just before I, I tried to go down, I realised I'd left one of the pieces of equipment that I needed to get down safely so, I mean obviously you stuck up a mast, there's not really a lot you can do about that other than free climb down and I had to detach what was holding me to the mast lower it down and then reattach it so there were points when I was completely you know holding on with one hand and nothing else and uh, and it was at one of these points when I dropped the piece of kit that was helping me down it was still there swinging below me but I couldn't reach it I couldn't grab it I was hanging on one arm and I was desperately trying to get a foot or a hand or just something back into the mast to kind of hold myself with more than one arm and I could feel this searing pain in my shoulder where my you know felt like my arm was being pulled out of its socket because it's this is not a still moment. The boat's not just sitting there on a glassy pond. It is literally throwing itself into waves because I had too much sail up. And you are being pounded into the mast, like holding onto a telegraph pole in an earthquake. It was pretty violent. And, uh, and the moment that went, you know, the, the, well, the image that went through my head in that moment was, um, was the young people in hospital who were following me around the world. I got a plaque with 100 of their names on. I'd been to visit them in hospitals in France before I left. And, uh, and I just thought, I can't let them down. I've got to get home. You know, they're, they're following me and I, and I can't let them down. And that was it. That was the image. And somehow I managed to get my foot back in and somehow I managed to get down the mast and obviously I'm still alive, so the, the, you know, the ending was a good one. But it was, it was without question the image of those young people in hospital that was there in my head. You talked, um, when I was reading through your book, Full Circle, you always talked in the we, even when you were doing your Down to the Bottom of the Earth solo mm -hmm. around the world. Was that a we as in you and the boat, Moby? Was that we, you and the team that were your kind of life support from afar? Yeah, I think, I mean, it always felt like me and the team, always. It always was. And actually, when I think back to that round the world journey, the, the second one in particular, actually, which was, you know, you're completely on your own. You're not even with anyone else in a race. I mean, there's, there's no one that you, you will see because you know, there's no one out there. It always felt to me like, you know, the best memories of that whole project were the memories with the team, putting the boat together, you know, training on the boat. Um, we had an amazing team for that trip. It was really extraordinary. You know, we did 
achieve really the impossible yeah. and uh, and everyone worked their socks off to do that so there was very much an element of we in the project but at sea it was very much me in the boat you know there was, that was I was the way. I never felt like it was me on my own. I was with the boat. Without the boat, I was, you know, dead pretty much instantly. <laughs> so actually, the boat's pretty key to your survival. And and I've always felt like that. There's, you know, there's you and the boat, and you and the boat sail, and you and the boat, are, you know, you look after the boat, and the boat look after you. It's it is a it's a partnership. In terms of putting teams together, you wouldn't necessarily just recruit on expertise alone. It's very much about the character of the people. Mm. In terms of all your leadership, what's your thinking around putting brilliant I think it's, teams together? Well, it's, it's, it's not just about the team and it's not just about the characters. It's about how you perceive success and what the goal is all about. And I always feel that, you know, the goal is essential. It's absolutely essential for kind of everyone to get what we're trying to achieve, else there's no motivation. The goal was completely clear. It was to build a boat that was fast, that was safe, that was well, they safe, they're not that safe, but <laughs> I'm coming you know, <laughs> the, just to try to do your absolute best. And I think when it comes to a team, it's the it's the mentality of the people. It's the people who are willing to to really you know go beyond the the call of duty. You know, me included. You know, because yeah. you you are pushing the boundaries so hard. I mean, when we built the trimaran and we went to Australia and and built her and then we worked on her in New Zealand for six weeks and then we sailed her on from there. You know, it sounds like a, a lovely holiday. You know, we had half a day off every week. It was such hard work and everyone just put the heart and soul into it. And, you know, everyone knew if, if part of what, you know, they did was done incorrectly, I could, you know, die or, or they could. When you've skippered a whole crew, what do you view your role is in that? So how you bring together and inspire the team I always feel that when you're working with a team of people, you shouldn't expect to, some, to do something that you're not prepared to do yourself. I'd always work just as hard as you know the other team members and try and work harder. You know, I, despite the fact that I was the one going off with the boat at the end, so you know when I go and they all kind of <laughs> go home, you don't. It's not the point. The point is that you're all working your socks off to try and achieve something, and you're the lucky one that gets to sail around the world. You talked about an earlier trip where you wanted to go to the Southern Ocean just to see how likely it would be that you might kill yourself down mm. there if you were going to do the round the globe. How do you prepare mentally for that? Have you had help from sports psychologists or is Not that really. something that you've, you've worked on yourself? I saw one once, I, oh, maybe twice. Um, it was when I'd done my first race. It was actually way before the, going in the Southern Ocean with the boat. But I did my first race in Kingfisher and um, it was a transatlantic race. I actually won it. I, I won the 60-foot class. It was the first race I'd ever done in a 60-footer and quite a surprise to me and everyone else that I won. <laughs> Um, but I spent the entire two weeks of that race feeling very nervous. You know, every yeah. moment of every day I was really nervous because, you know, the, the stakes are high. You know, a sponsor has put a vast amount of money into a boat, which you're the skipper of, and you want to do your best, and that makes you feel nervous. And I kind of felt, crikey, if I'm this nervous for three months in the Vendée Globe, this isn't, this, you know, this is, this, this is something that's just not sustainable. And actually I saw this guy, may have been twice, but definitely once, and his verdict was actually, you know, you're, you're fully wired, you're ready for it, so actually there's not a lot I can do for you. And you talked about, before you set off on the Round the World Challenge, that you actually wish you had a bit more time to prepare. The time to prepare is more before you finish than before you start. Is it? I mean, you put everything in before you start and you're pretty much ready to go. I mean, yeah. give or take. You've thought about everything and, and really, if you haven't, you shouldn't really be going. That's when accidents happen. But when you finish, you never have time to come to terms with it because... You're racing, you're racing, you're racing, you're racing. The gun goes and it's over. There's no yeah. time to prepare. It's over and there's the world's media there. And that's actually incredibly tough to deal with. 
emotionally as an individual because you're you, know, you you absolutely cannot think about it until you cross the line because it's not done. The goal's not you know we like thinking about winning the Olympics before you've you know you've started your last race or you know getting a gold or whatever it is you just you know just because you can see the finish line there and you're in first position absolutely does not mean you're going to win that race. And you've talked a bit about some of the loss of anonymity that once people knew who you were and the kind of the media attention and the focus on you something that you've never particularly strived for that it's a consequence mm. of everything that, that you've done and that's something that you've that you've struggled with at times yeah I guess you know people maybe assume that you know when you're successful in sport that you you want all the attention and actually I couldn't be further from the truth the only reason <laughs> I did it was because I wanted to sail around the world and I loved sailing and and this was the way I was going to be able to do it because I couldn't afford it any other way and I don't regret that for a second because that leads to amazing things like being able to share the story and film the story and you know and, and have thousands well millions of people from all over yes. the world follow you you know there's an amazingly touching element to that but I never did it because I wanted to be someone who was known. I did it because I wanted to sell around the world. Talk to me a bit about decision-making and taking some of the biggest decisions where your life is on the line, um, with the backdrop of being out there on your own. Did you ever feel that you were losing it, the fo- your focus in taking those decisions whilst you're out You there? never lose your focus, because your focus is, is what keeps you alive, and your focus is what takes you there in the first place, yeah. actually. and yeah. and. You know, I wasn't out there racing around the world, you know, pushing myself beyond my limits because, you know, someone said it would be a good idea if I did. <laughs> I went there because I wanted to be there. So, yes, it is extremely difficult, and sleep deprivation is like torture. You, you know, have to find energy to deal with consequences that are outside your control when you have no more energy. Yeah. And then two days later that gets worse, or two hours later that gets worse, and you can never control that. You never know when things will get worse or better. You can only assume that things should get better. Um, it's incredibly stressful. You can't really sleep. You know, you sleep for 20 minutes, well, eight minutes, five minutes, sometimes 20, occasionally an hour, very rarely two hours, and only once in 72 days did I sleep for three hours in a row. That was the longest I ever slept. You are literally pounding through the ocean 24-7, and that's an incredibly challenging environment to survive in, let alone make decisions on the, you know, on, the, on one of the fastest boats in the world. You've written about missing out on key moments, like key moments with your family, mm. dad's 60th birthday you mm. mentioned, Christmases. How do you look back on that now? Well, I'm very close to my family. I'm very lucky. My family is very understanding. That does help hugely, but you know, when you take on challenges that are so enormous, there are lots of sacrifices you have to make. And it's not just you, it's those around you as well, you know, who are very close to you, who you don't get to see. I mean, I didn't see my mum and dad for 72 days, and before that I didn't see them for 94 it's a long time to be at sea in a very stressful situation that they have absolutely no control over, knowing that you could fall overboard at any time, day or night, and never come home again. I mean, the things you put them through are actually, in a way, far worse than you, because you know you're fine. All they can see is the boat still tracking through the ocean, but it would do that for some time, even if you'd fallen off. Because of the auto. Because the auto helps. So the position you put them in is far, far, I think, worse than the position you put yourself in. Um, but I think you, you, know, you have to... You just have to deal with it as, you know, you set yourself a goal. They understand how, in, how important that goal is for you. They understand there will be many sacrifices, not just for them, but for you in order for you to achieve that goal. And it is hard, you know, but, but you know, something good comes out of it. And, you know, thousands, millions of people, you know, follow what you're doing and they're inspired and, and it might just be to fix the mower, as someone wrote in one of their emails. <laughs> I just I went outside and decided I was going to fix the lawnmower because it's been sat there for so long and if you can sail around the world, I can fix my mower. So it, it's about far more than you and, and although... Ultimately, the goal to sail around the world, it is about your dream and your goal, and it's something that you want to achieve. I think there's a definite element that, you know, if you can share what you're doing as much as you possibly can, and, and I always wanted to do that, I always filmed it as much as I possibly yeah. could, and, 
it was something very important to me because I felt so lucky to be there. I wanted to share it. I think good things can come from that too. And I love the story about your mum sending you flapjacks through the post so you could take them with you. And lovely quote um, from your dad. I think you called him when you crossed the equator, you got to the equator, and he said, at the end of the day, the stars will be with you or against Mm. you, and Mm. I think they'll be with you. Mm. If you hadn't had that sort of support, and they sound amazing, uh, would you have been able to achieve, do you think, what you have if they'd tried to hold you back in some way or not allowed you to have the freedom that you craved? It's interesting you use the word support because as a kid, my mum and dad, it was it support. Did they encourage me to do it? No, not at all. They didn't encourage me to do it, but they never stopped me. You have the, you know, the traditional phrase of, you know, pushy parents. My mum and dad never, never were like that. You know, they, we were encouraged, obviously, quite strongly to help out with chores at home and tidy our rooms <laughs> and do normal things that are about growing up and learning about life. But they never, ever, ever tried to stop me from sailing around Britain when I was 18, which was actually probably arguably just as dangerous as racing a solo transatlantic at 23 or possibly even a Vendée Globe at 24. You know, I didn't have a boat that had all the high-tech equipment. I didn't have a sponsor that had funded everything. Um, I had a tiny little boat I bought with my school dinner money change and I was sailing around a rocky coast of Great Britain with a five-horsepower engine on the back if everything went wrong. Actually, that's quite dangerous. Um, But they never stopped me because they knew it was in me to go and do it and they trusted me to take it seriously and prepare properly and and it paid off, luckily, for them. Thinking about some of the times when you you have had problems, um, we talked about one of the mass snapping on one of the trips that you did and Mm -hmm. the, the Kingfisher where it completely capitalised and your whole world went upside down what kind of thought process did you have at the time and how did you stay I don't know you can answer that question because I don't think you know how you will react until you're in that situation the the bravest people I've ever met are the young people who go through cancer treatment which is absolutely horrendous and it totally shouldn't be something that they have to deal with especially not at their age and yet they go through that with smiles on their faces and passion for life I mean that's real bravery you know, can, can we deal with it? No, none of us can deal with it. But faced with it, you have to deal with it. Somehow you have to deal with it. And I don't think any of us know how we will deal with anything until we have to deal with it. And maybe some would break, maybe some wouldn't deal with it. But I think you'd be surprised how many people would deal with it if they really had to, because you don't have a choice. I mean, one of the things I always used to do before going off on any journey, and, and actually still do in many ways in life, is I always try and work out, if this happens, what do I need to do? If this happens, what do I need to do? Okay. To go through scenarios, because... Stuff will go wrong. I mean, at sea, stuff goes wrong all the time. And you can never prepare for everything. You can't make sure things don't go wrong because they just do because you're pushing yourself and about that hard for that long. It's just going to lead to failures. I think, for me, running through all those scenarios is a quite important thing to do. You talked about how you packed and how carefully you had to pack and the finite resources that you had and that if you'd run out of something, it could have been disastrous. Um, and that kind of sparked in you the, the thinking about sustainability. Um, Not really sustainability. Within. I wouldn't use that word. Um, what, what, what it made me realise was the way the global economy functions is as dependent on those finite resources as I was on the boat. And that's actually a big question for our economy, for our future, for the, the way our cities and countries and continents operate you know in a way it's it's far more than picking one word and saying it's about that it's actually fundamentally the way humankind survives on this planet is incredibly linear where we take a material out of the ground we make something out of it and then we throw it away actually that cannot work when you have three billion new middle class consumers entering the global economy and a finite supply of resources it just doesn't make sense we may be able to buy ourselves time. We may be able to slow down the demise of some of the, you know, materials or the, you know, the, 
the speed at which we use them up, but ultimately that, that model cannot, cannot run in the long term. That's what hit me. It was, it was a really fundamental feeling that actually our entire economy was fundamentally flawed and why had I not thought of that before and why was that not on the tip of everyone's tongues because this is quite a big deal whether you're in a developed country or an emerging market or a farmer or a chief executive actually we have some pretty big challenges facing us. This is about what does success look like for, the, for our future, for the future of the economy, for the future of businesses, for the future of emerging markets. When you look at the way the economy runs today, it can't run in the long term. So it was more a question of, so if linear doesn't work, what is the solution for the way the economy can run? And that can't be about being a little bit more careful with what we use, and it can't be about making a little bit more with a little bit less. That's never going to work because it's the whole system that has to change. And once you start to see circular economy and the opportunity to shift from being extractive and consumptive to restorative and regenerative, suddenly you see that you can not only be restorative and regenerative when it comes to technical materials that would sit in you know, computers or trains or cars, but also biological material, you know, cotton, timber, food, agricultural waste, human waste. You've got all of these materials, which in theory should be non-toxic and biodegrade. They could restore and rejuvenate the soil, which currently we don't do. Whereas actually, if you look at it through a different lens and you're able to recover the materials and feed them back into the economy, you can actually rebuild natural capital. Now, for the next generation growing up today, that's a pretty positive message. And do you think that can coexist alongside what people would call kind of rampant consumerism or materialism? There was an article um, recently in The Independent that was talking about how people have become so materialistic and how they ascribe value to things and mm -hmm. want to acquire more things. Clothes are cheaper, they want to... Mm -hmm buy more clothes, mm -hmm. you know, I think about my mum when she used to go out, she used to have a going out outfit, and now mm. most people have got a selection, would never wear the same thing twice, so mm. one of the hardest things to do is to change human behaviour, and also a system that depends on profit, how, how do you feel that you can cut through that to, to make such a, a big change in the way that we think about how we use things? Well, profit can be made in many ways. You know, when we started out with circular economy, the first thing we did was go to McKinsey and ask them what the economic rationale was for a circular economy. And their rationale was actually, this is very positive, you can make more money as a business through circularity than linearity. So forget the rampant consumerism for a, side, for a moment. Actually, yeah. the circular model, if you look at shifting from selling to services, if you look at net material cost savings when you make things because you start to recover the materials or remanufacture, the savings are massive. So we get a better deal as the user of that vehicle or that item of clothing and the manufacturer makes more money because they're not having to continue to buy new raw materials every time they make something. You change the entire system. Um, if you think about you know, our demand for IT, for example, and that's a, you know, a great example of consumerism, um, we have all these latest smartphones and they're changing all the time and they have more and more ability to do more and more things. You know, if that phone is designed so it can be remanufactured, if that phone is designed so it can be repaired, if that phone is designed so when it is no longer um, worth repairing it or remanufacturing it, which it will be for a while because it has a lot of value as a phone. It still does a lot, even if it's not the latest. There are a range of demands within the market depending on how much money people have and their thirst for the latest equipment. But if it's designed to fit within that model, then actually if it cycles quickly, which IT generally always will because it, it does shift quickly. You know, we don't have the same iPhone we had 10 years ago. In fact, the iPhone probably didn't even exist 10 years ago. And now they're everywhere, for example. So if you build a phone to sit within a system, and the materials are recovered and the energy is recovered through remanufacturing and repair, actually is that such a bad thing? Because you've built that phone for a cycle. If you have fast cycling biological materials, for example, does that mean that the faster the cycling of those materials, the quicker you rejuvenate farmland? 
actually, if you design for a system and that system is beneficial, then the speed of rotation of product in some will absolutely rotate faster than others. Maybe that is not such a negative thing at all. And you've you thought carefully about the language that you used around this so that it's not a sense of doom and gloom and feeling like a negative message on using up the world's resources mm-hmm. wasn't helpful uh, and thinking about how things could be better and aspirational and inspirational. Mm-hmm. How, how much of your leadership uh, with all your sailing are you now using those skills in leading the Ellen MacArthur Foundation to change people's thinking and behaviour? I think from my perspective, you know, it's not really about leadership from sailing. It's maybe single-mindedness to get to the bottom of something. You know, when you're trying to break around the world record, you have to think of everything and you have to completely focus on one thing and nothing else. And I think what's happened with the foundation and the circular economy is, you know, as it, and I, I, this is not me now, there's 100 people working in this organisation all over the world. Actually, this is about working out what success looks like. And that's evolving all the time. We don't know probably 1% or 2% of the circular economy yet, but we do know that what's out there resonates, that it has a very strong economic rationale, that it appears to decouple growth from resource constraints, and actually it seems to, it seems to beat linear wherever we look at this, and it has the potential to be restorative and regenerative. And it's all about opportunity, and you, know, you talk about avoiding the doom and gloom. We don't talk about doom and gloom here. You know, obviously there's a problem with linear economy. That said, that's all you need to say. There's one line, this doesn't work. <laughs> But actually, circular really can, and it's about opportunity, it's about innovation, it's about creativity, it's about rethinking a system to build something better. I know, and as someone that buys coffee confession time to read that the lids on coffee cups, they can't do anything with them, to look in a bin as you walk down the average street in London that's just full of coffee cups, it just feels that it can't, it can't continue on that basis. Do you feel like you're buying people in? I would say less quickly with the general public than it is with businesses and legislation and cities and regions. I mean, people at the back end, such as the waste reprocessors or the City of London, you know, they get all this material. They know how much material is not recyclable. They know what's made in a very linear way and not designed for a circular system. What we're trying to do at the foundation is change the system so that when you buy your coffee, it's not in a cup which is so badly designed that the top can't be possibly cycled. Actually, if you change the system and that coffee is designed for a system and the coffee grounds go in one direction and the material from the cup goes in another direction and the lid may go in the same direction as the cup or not, if it's designed for a system which is restorative and regenerative, then you've fixed the problem. And it's not about the user or the, you know, the person buying the cup saying, oh, crikey, this lid, there's just a yet another lid that actually I can't do anything with. The fact you can't, you, you don't make it, you don't produce it. We all need to drink, and coffee is one of the, you, know, you could arguably say it's a luxury or a necessity, depends <laughs> on the person. But actually, the system doesn't work, and that's what the circular economy is all about. It's about changing the system so the system works. But actually, yeah. you can't fix that as an individual. And even if every single individual in the world chose to change, we cannot fix the problem because the system doesn't work. I watched your TED talk. Um, as a total aside, how was it delivering a TED talk? Um, it's quite a lot to get in in 16 minutes or whatever it was. <laughs> Um, it's an amazing platform to get a message out across the world. So when, when you do it, yes, of course, the pressure's on. It's, uh, it's not the easiest presentation that you'll ever give because TED are quite prescriptive in their own right as to you know, the content and, the, yeah. and how it's presented. Um, but it's an amazing platform. And really powerful, really powerful message. Just to say thanks so much. It's, it's brilliant to talk to you. I really appreciate you giving the time to share those insights and to just get a real sense of the passion that you've got for the circular economy as well. It's fantastic. Well, thank you for coming all the way to the Isle of Wight to, to talk. Lovely to be here in the sun, <laughs> in this beautiful building. Thank you. Thanks, Joe.